So today, uh, we start a series called Can You See It? That's a cool little eye chart right there. Uh, what we want to do is to start to establish a common vision of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so we're going to spend these next few weeks leading up to Easter and Lent talking about the kingdom. We're going to focus on Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, which is remarkably uh, profound and can turn your world upside down. Books and volumes have been written about those, uh, those verses in Matthew 5. But today, we kind of want to get a, uh, uh, just an overview of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, the kingdom of God is uh, probably the central message of scriptures. Starting in Genesis 1, where it says the word dominion. Now we're talking about rule. And if we talk about rule, we're going to start talking about kingdom. When Jesus preaches all the way through the Gospels, he's always talking about a kingdom. When he, does, uh, when he says a parable, you know those confusing stories he tells? He says, the kingdom of God is like this. And he continues, and he's talking about the kingdom. When he does healings, when there's a miracle done, people will say the kingdom is showing up, is what they like to say, or the kingdom of God is present. His teachings, he says, seek ye first the kingdom. Everything that Jesus talks about is reflecting back to that original calling that each one of us has, is to be a reflection of the kingdom. And the kingdom, that whole concept in the New Testament alone, is said 162 times. So you better believe with 162 times and with the central message of it being the whole crux of Scripture and redemptive history, there's probably 168 reasons or different opinions about what the kingdom actually stands for. And I feel that we as a church uh, here at Bethany and the church worldwide and in America and worldwide, we've missed this part of Scripture a lot. We don't talk about the central point of the scripture. We usually talk about other things. And we've forgotten a little bit or a lot of it about what the kingdom is, what it stands for. We've taught about other things rather than focusing primarily on the central teachings of Jesus, which was the kingdom. And it's been to a little bit of our, the church's cultural demise and we've lost our voice because Jesus would teach about kingdom and we saw in Matthew 4, large crowds started to follow them and people came away changed. And when you, get, when you deviate from the central message of scripture, people stop being changed. When you start talking about pet projects or you start bringing in other things and you miss the part about the kingdom of God being in your midst, you miss the point of what Jesus was talking about in all of his life and ministry, in his death and in his resurrection. And so we're going to spend some time talking about this. Today we're going to clarify some key questions that are in your bulletin. We're going to talk about what is the kingdom, where is the kingdom, and who is in the kingdom. So we're going to go back and look at that passage that Tim just read, but we're going to point out some things going on. Jesus, this is Matthew 4 again, it'll be on the screen. Uh, and I, I use the NIV. Some you use different translations. That's fine. Uh, in Ma in uh, Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching and proclaiming, 
Skip down a couple lines. And then there was news of healing every disease and sickness among the people. Signs of the kingdom. The curse of Genesis 3 had been broken when there was sickness and death that invaded and took over dominion when humans sinned. Now sickness and death is being broken. People are being healed. You skip down. And people from Syria. Matthew has given us a little hint. This message is far-reaching. People from Syria are coming in with their various diseases. People suffering, suffering some severe pain. The demon-possessed. Those having seizures. The paralyzed. And Jesus healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Galilee, this is a clue what Matthew's saying. Galilee was a heavily Jewish neighborhood. Decapolis, it's the Greek word for ten cities. Heavily Greek neighborhood. Judea, uh, the place that you would have thought was Podunk, kind of, maybe Tacoma. Uh, the, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> The place where you think, wow, that's really out there. That's far away. Redmond for some of you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a ways. It's on the other side of the lake. Literally. Uh, it's on the other side of the lake. And then that really, really, really far place. Spokane. All of these people are coming to this one central place. Because Jesus is doing something here. And it's changing the way the world operates. Have you ever had that experience where you stand maybe at a doorway and you know that if you walk through this doorway, your life will be forever different? Uh, maybe it was a wedding day. For me, I was standing in the upstairs part of my, my parents' home. We got married in our backyard. And I knew as soon as I walked down those stairs and go stand next to my brother uh, who did our wedding and wait for Carrie to come down, my whole world would be changed. This is what it was like for those people. It was changed for the better. Don't worry. But this, uh, it, this is one of those experiences where the people are coming to meet Jesus because he's changing their world. Everything is now different and upside down. But the first question we have to get to is, what is this kingdom that he's talking about? The word kingdom in Greek and Hebrew has two different meanings. The first one is, is this idea of rule. When we think of kingdom, we think of you're ruling this area. The king of England or the queen of England is a ruler of England. There's a space where that rule uh, has say. The other meaning for the Greek and Hebrew word for kingdom is realm. The place where your rule fits. So you have say-so because it's your kingdom and you're the realm of the kingdom is where your say-so matters. The realm is the place where, that, where your rule takes place. Does this make sense? Clear as mud is what my dad would say, right? Are we getting it? You have the realm and the rule of your kingdom. Now, if you go to Matthew 6, chapter 9, if you want to write Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, get that right. Uh, Matthew gives us a little bit more of a clue about the kingdom. It's a famous passage. We can probably recite it. Matthew's version is a little bit different from Luke's, but we'll go with it. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And because memory and forgive us our debts as we forgive us uh, forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one we have to finish it right because you've memorized it in a certain way never mind um 
Jesus teaches us here, he teaches his disciples to pray something that will help make better sense of the kingdom. Did you notice the line in there, your kingdom come, your will be done, and then it tacks on, on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. There's a concept in writing or in speaking called parallelism. It's when you say the same thing twice using different sort of words. And so when Jesus says, your kingdom come, is in essence the same thing as your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So your kingdom, your divine say so. May, it, may your kingdom come and your will be done. When you have a kingdom, that means your will is done. Uh, to illustrate it, if, if you think of it this way, each and every one of you has a kingdom or a queendom, depending on how uh, you are. You have a kingdom and you have a queendom. You have the say-so of various things in your life. Now, we can get into the whole free will debate, and that would probably be fun for about 10 minutes for three of us. Uh, uh, but that's another topic over coffee or a beverage somewhere. But today, think of your kingdom as you made choices this morning. Steve, you wore that vest. Brendan, you wore that jacket. We made choices on what we wear. I go over my choices of what I wear with my wife because I would wear something terrible. But we, we make choices of what we wear, of what we say, how we deal with people. We have choices on whether we're going to cut the guy off in front of us, whether we're going to get mad. We have choices of what donut you picked this morning, if there was donuts when you came in, whether you like cream in your coffee. These are things where you have say-so. That is your kingdom. That is the realm of your decision. If you don't think that you have a realm of decision-making, when you get married, all of a sudden you tie yourself to another person that has their own kingdom or queendom, and then you put two kingdoms together, and then there's discussions about which kingdom is going to get the say. We have kingdoms, we have choices, and then you have a little one, and you make dinner for them, and it looks good, and then they sit on the ground and get red faced because they want macaroni and cheese, even though they can't say macaroni and cheese. Then there's a third kingdom that doesn't know fully how to express their kingdom reign. Are we tracking with me? We each have kingdoms, we each have says, uh, but... What Jesus is saying here is this kingdom, when he talks about the kingdom, he isn't talking about this far off, distant place. He's talking about the reign and rule of God coming in and invading your kingdom, affecting the way you live, affecting the way you make choices. He's talking about the reign of God, the rule and reign of God, busting into your life. So we have the rule of God, which is his will being done. But then there's this distinguishing place in those two lines that can cause us some confusion. He says there's a difference between the word where the rule is done in heaven and on earth. He says, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in, on earth as it is in heaven. So what he's saying essentially is God's will is freely and openly and always done his way in heaven. 
on earth, he's praying for that kind of reign of God and rule of God to be as present on earth as it is in heaven. Are we tracking? It's kind of weird. It's, it's heavy stuff. It'll all make sense, but we need to answer these questions before we go any further. Jesus is asking that God's will, God's divine say-so, it does not take away from his sovereignty, his power. He has chosen to let us decide what kingdom we go through. And he's saying, Jesus is asking that that kingdom would invade our spaces on earth, in our lives, as it already is done in heaven. The writer in Psalms says, says it this way in Psalms 115. The highest heavens belongs to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. He's not talking about authority. And obviously God is over everything and anything at any time. Yet Jesus and the psalmist make this distinction of where God's will is freely obeyed and where other people's will and say so get in the way. We make a distinction between the two because what is true in earth needs to be what is true of heaven. And when we think of heaven, it's very easy to think of heaven as it's these people with harps playing in the clouds somewhere, somewhere far off in the distant future, never around us. But here are some synonyms of the words heavens in, in the scriptures. Uh, it, synonyms are find it sky, atmosphere, air. We would all say the air is close by, correct? Or this, the place where God rules. In other words, heaven, the heavens aren't someplace out there. Instead, what Jesus is trying to say is the heavens are po quite possibly very close to around us. The invisible realm, where what God says happens freely and without us getting in the way. And the point of what Jesus is talking about of this kingdom, your kingdom coming, is that we would be transformed by it and experience it ourselves. So not only do we find out what it is when Jesus is talking about what is this kingdom, but who, where is this kingdom is the next question. If you have your Bibles or you want to write in your notes, go to Luke chapter 17. Jesus says it this way. And this is probably the clearest example of when Jesus talks about kingdom. This is, he talks in code a lot, but this one's pretty clear. It's still kind of foggy. The coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, verse 21. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. We could take two parts from this. First, the kingdom of God is not a reordering of social and political structures. We would like it to be. We confuse the kingdom of God with politics. It is not politics. The kingdom of God is not Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green. What else is there? Socialist brown, green, red, whatever. The kingdom of God is not a political party. It is not a social contract. We like to tie the kingdom of God to whoever is in office that we might like. If someone who we didn't vote for is there, guess what we say? This is not the kingdom. This is not what God wanted. Everything is going to pot. We are just going to fly off the earth and we're going to get nuked. 
That's because we've tied the Christ hope to a person. The kingdom of God is not in political office. Jesus goes to extreme measures. Paul goes to extreme measures to differentiate the two of them. When you hear in scripture, Jesus is Lord, it is a political statement saying, guess who isn't? Caesar. So there is a difference between the way politics works and the kingdom of God. Should the kingdom of God and it breaking into your life, God's rule breaking into your heart, changing you, should that change the way you view politics? Absolutely. But it is not your politics. It's sort of like when you decide to throw a rock into a still lake. You throw the rock in and what happens? It splashes and then you see ripples, right? Are the ripples the rock? Or is it the effect of the rock? The ripples of the kingdom are not, or the ripples of the kingdom have effect in every single part of your life. But politics, the what you do, that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is found only in Christ. That's the first distinction that we can make. The second one is this the kingdom of God is not primarily something that resides in the future. The word that's used here is a present tense. The kingdom of God is within you. It is, it is, it's not will be within you. It's present already right now. And it's a difficult thing uh, to get your mind around sometimes. It's difficult because we don't experience it all the time. And so we have this inner struggle. Am I in the kingdom or am I not? How can I be in the kingdom? Why am I not seeing the kingdom all the time? And it's confusing It's discouraging because we see evidences and pieces and rabbit trails of the kingdom and we like it and we start going, yes, 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 people are healed, visions, people are being prayed for, God is speaking and all of a sudden you go for weeks, months, more months and you don't hear a thing, you don't feel a thing and so we get confused of why we don't experience the kingdom. And so to solve the confusion, some people have taken this word within and said, oh, it just means it's the word among. And so the kingdom of God is among you as if it's between your rows or between your seats. That's what some people try and translate the word within to mean among. But the word is within. And they can't change the word. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God is with you. It's in you already. What we need is to wake up to the fact that the kingdom is there and allow Christ to wake up your soul so you can begin to experience it more. Jesus told parables about the kingdom to try and help people understand, so we'll give it a shot. The kingdom of God is like this. A rich man one day decided he needed to know what a kiwi would taste like. He had never experienced a kiwi. You know those brown things? And so he, uh, making sure we've all experienced the Kiwi. And so he decided he was going to hire a renowned physician, uh, a world famous sculptor. And to round it out, he, he was going to bring a beggar. And he brought them all into his courts or whatever it is when rich people have forums. And so he brought, brings them in and he charges all of these people to tell him what the Kiwi would taste like. So the first up was the doctor. 
And the doctor takes it and puts the stethoscope on there and, and she's listening for a, a heart. She's feeling for a pulse, doesn't feel or hear anything. And so she orders CAT scans and MRIs and whatever else they use to see the inside of something. And she does all of this and then she brings her report back to the rich man and says, it doesn't have a pulse. I can't see anything on the MRI. Uh, CAT scan was negative. Uh, this is what the kiwi must taste like. Nothing. And the rich man goes, eh, not good enough. And so the sculptor's shot at it. And so the sculptor comes and he picks it up and he realizes that it's, it's kind of firm and fuzzy and feels like burlap a little bit. And, and, and decides, it, so if that's what it tastes like, and he writes down and begins to draw it, but then the thought hits him, but what if the flavor is on the inside? So he peels it and he gets it and he says, whoa, it doesn't only taste fuzzy and rough, it also tastes smooth and cold and kind of slimy. So this sculptor takes his reports back to the rich man and says, the king, the, this kiwi is smooth, cold, and slimy, but also kind of rough and husky. Uh, and the rich man goes, no, that can't be it. So the beggar's shot. And the beggar comes in and doesn't, doesn't know much about you know, the sciences or the arts and, and comes and does what the beggar should do. He rips it open and he tastes it. He takes a bite of it. The first thing that his, his face lights up and the rich man goes, what is it? What does it taste like? And the beggar goes, I can describe to you that it's sweet. It tastes good. It's refreshing. But you have to experience this for yourself. It's not something that you can think of or intellect your way through. In order to taste what a kiwi tastes like, you have to taste it. The kingdom of God is kind of like that kiwi. We can try our best to understand it with intellect. We can try our best to reason and logic your way through it. But the best way to taste a kiwi is not through your ear. It's through your tongue to taste it. The best way to experience the kingdom of God is not to sit around and think about it. Sitting around and thinking about it, that's great. Think about it all you want, but don't forget that the best way to experience the kingdom is to actually allow it to penetrate your life and change you. The best way to experience something is not to read about other people's experiences, but to get out and actually experience it. The kingdom of God is within you. It's there. It has to be woken up. And that's why Jesus came, to wake up the parts of our soul that have been hardened and turned away from the kingdom. We all are made in the image of God. The image of God is still within you. And that's the part that hearkens to the voice of the kingdom that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus brings. And the Holy Spirit wakes you up to this new reality that everything is different. So who is this kingdom for? If we have a hard time experiencing it, then what is it? Who is it for? That's the next question we get to. Now back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus had all these crowds and he goes up on a mountainside and he sits down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, you'll hear it in both different ways. It means the same thing. Uh, Matthew and Luke use those phrases, and it just, it, it, depending on their audience, one understood heaven better, one understood God better. And so Matthew says the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean, poor in spirit? First off, poor in spirit is a negative term. It's not something that you want. Here are better uh, translations for the words poor in spirit. The spiritually bankrupt, the spiritual zeros, the pathetic, the lame, the out of it, those without a trace of good, those who are empty. The poor in spirit is not something that you necessarily want to achieve. It's not something where you go out and say, I'm going to be poor in spirit today. That's my goal. Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, he wrote this book called Divine Conspiracy, which is mainly about Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to follow along, that's one of our sources for this series. But he says, it's not something that we want to celebrate. Sometimes this verse gets translated, blessed are those who realize how much they need God. And it makes it sound like there's an award for being humble. Like I'm the humblest person in the room today, so I'm going to wear a button. It doesn't make sense. That's not how the verse was said. When Jesus says this, he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not someone who is achieving poverty in spirit. And when Jesus says blessed, he's doing something interesting. Jesus says blessed, and what he means by it is this divine way, a divine way of Jesus saying you're blessed, meaning I'm with you. I'm next to you. I'm close to you. Fortunate are those who are the spiritual zeros, the nobodies, the people who can't get it together. Blessed are those because Jesus, God, is next to them in those places. Fortunate are the losers, the pathetic, the depraved, because God is on their side. And what Jesus is doing here, and he's not giving us a seven-point lesson on how we can achieve something. He's making a simple announcement. This is how it is. This isn't something to become. This is how you are, and you're blessed when you're in this shape. Because God is by your side. Instead, he announces that God is on the side of everyone who have no reason for God to be on their side. It's sort of like water skiing. Has anyone ever water skied or wakeboarded? I tried, it. I tried to relearn how to wakeboard at Malibu this last year. It was awful. I hadn't done wakeboarding since like 20 years ago, it seems. Uh, man, I'm old. Uh, but we used to go wakeboarding a lot in college, and I hadn't done it since college, and I'm 37. And so I'm sitting behind a boat trying to refigure out how to do this. And when you're learning to wakeboard or ski, what's the phrase that the people say from you from inside the boat? Do we know? Let the boat do the work? That's a load of hogwash. It does not help. Let the boat pull you up. So in order, the goal of wakeboarding and skiing is to get from under the water to on top of the water, correct? And the best way that they tell me how to do this is to sit down in the water. So to get on top of the water, I have to be below the water. Makes no sense. Totally counterintuitive. It doesn't help. But when you get it, 
when you understand what is meant by sit back and let the boat pull you. It starts to make sense. Now, it didn't make sense to me in Malibu again, but I know it makes sense because I got up once or twice years ago. I know what it means. And to relearn it is so counterintuitive to the way you and I think. The best way to get up is to stay down. It's backwards. And this is what Jesus' announcement is all about. It's completely counterintuitive. Because when we think about the kingdom of God, our first question is to ask why, where, how do I get it, when is it going to show up, how much is it going to cost me, how long will it take? We as Americans, as Western culture, we like definite answers. We want to put it on our iCal so we know when to schedule it. But Jesus is saying this, that doesn't work this way. What makes me deserve this blessing? Nothing. You already have it. Blessed are the people where there's no reason as to why they should be blessed. Or blessed are all those who aren't humble. Blessed are those wretched sinners, those prostitutes, those tax collectors. Blessed are those people who wouldn't choose God if they had to. This is the announcement that Jesus gives, and you wonder why it turned the culture upside down. It's really disturbing for religious people to hear this. But if we look at the way Jesus modeled his ministry, this is what he said God was like. Luke 14, there's an upside-down dinner party. A rich man's going to throw another party, and he starts to invite all of his friends, and his friends come back with excuses of why they can't be there. I have to go buy a cow, or I bought a cow, and now i got to go test drive it. I just got married. Uh, I bought land, and I, need, and I need to go see it because I bought it. And they come up with all the excuses. So what's the rich man do? He invites everybody who shouldn't be at the party. All of the ones, the down and outs, the spiritual zeros, the poor in spirits. And he invites them to the party. And then Jesus says, this is what our God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It is available to all those who don't deserve it. Jesus destroys our hierarchy of what we think we are deserving of. He says, blessed are those who don't have it figured out. Blessed are the losers without any resemblance of religion. And everything changed. But this is what our God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's available. All we have to do is allow it. It's a pattern that Jesus had in his ministry. The poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because of their meritorious condition, but precisely in spite of it. It's an announcement. And so if we were to tie the poor in spirit to some of maybe our hang-ups, some of our past, it might read like this. The kingdom of God is available to you, to the ones who have done the unthinkable. Blessed are you because God is on your side. The kingdom of God is available to you, those who have cheated, those who have lied, those who have betrayed. Blessed are you because God is on your side. The ones who have screwed it up, the ones who have gotten fired over and over again, the ones who can't hold down the job, blessed are you because God is on your side. 
Blessed are you to the ones who can't stop clicking on those websites that we know we can't stop clicking on. Blessed are you because God is on your side. Blessed are you when you find yourself at the end of your rope. Can't go any further because then and there you realize that God is on your side and the kingdom of God is available to you. It's closer than you think. It's not far off. It's not distant. It's at your fingertips. It's within your breath. It's within you. It's among you. And all we have to do is allow God to take over our kingdoms and queendoms and kingdomettes, whatever you have, and allow God's rule and reign to wake you up to the fact that his kingdom is within you. All we need to do is sit in the counterintuitive, shocking vision that God says to us, all of you outcasted ones who have been physically outcast by people around you or personally outcasted yourself, all of you, the kingdom of God is still available to you if you allow it to come into you and grow. This is why Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God was so earth-shattering for that day because they were expecting it to be something else. They were expecting it to be an outside force coming in, someone who comes in and does the work for them. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not political. I'm not going to take anybody over. In fact, it looks like a cross. It looks like surrender. It looks like allowing Christ to take over your life and going back to your original vocation as an image bearer, reflecting to the world what God is like. The kingdom of God is present. And today we take communion. Uh, first of the month, first service of the year, uh, we take communion. And as we take it, it's freely offered to you, much like the kingdom. As we take and we eat the bread, and we dip it in the cup, and we take the juice, and whatever the order is, uh, we remember that this is the kingdom of God presently and available to you for your taking. And you have a choice. Your kingdom, we know how usually that goes, or God's kingdom. Allowing yourself to step into a new reality that can change your entire world. As I pray, as the communion servers come forward, uh, pray with me. Father, we thank you that your kingdom has come. We thank you that we can have it still. That there aren't boundaries to us out sinning your coverage. And Lord, as we come forward and celebrate uh, the revolution that you began this kingdom revolution that happens within us. Lord, allow us to surrender our kingdom to yours, our lives to your life, to reflect back to the world around us what you look like. And these next few weeks as we discuss what it looks like to be in this kingdom, may you show us, may you show us the practical outlets to this all. And it's your name we pray.